Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the things that your word has to say, Lord. And I pray, God, that the words that I share would be your words, Lord, and not mine. And that, Lord, you'd just be glorified in and through this time, Father. We love you, Father. We're looking to you, Lord. We know, God, that the purposes that you have for us are amazing. And, Lord, we want to take advantage of every wonderful thing that you have available to us, Lord. So keep us looking to you, Lord. Keep us seeking you. Keep us excited about what you have to say and the things, Lord, that you would desire to do, Lord. Uh, may we be open to everything, Lord, that you have. And so, Lord, we love you, God. We thank you. Go before us. Fill us with your spirit. And we just ask these things now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 2, and we are going to uh, jump into verse 12 in just a second. Now, as I've shared with you guys before, I've entitled this series, The Church Age, and uh, there's a reason why I've entitled this series. Listen, the seven letters that are written to the seven churches are critically important for three main reasons. And of course, I'm going to try to drill this in your head every time we go back to this every single week, and they're important for these reasons, okay, the following reasons. Number one, they're important because they they had a powerful message to the church at that time, right? So when Jesus uh, wrote these letters to those churches, those churches really needed to hear what Jesus had to say. And they were very powerful, right? The letters that were written all had something to say. They were all meaningful. Very important exhortations were being given. And the insight that was being gained from the letters being written were very, very valid to the church at the time. The second reason why it's so valuable is because these letters are being written to us. Now, you might say, oh, no, James, we're not the church in Pergamos. We're the church in Signal Hill. But indeed, we are literally every single one of these letters are important to us directly. You want to know why? Because Jesus says what? He that has a what? Let him what? And we have two ears, right? And so he who has a ear, let him hear. Who has a ear, let him hear. <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means this message is very important for us. And every single element brought up in every single church that we see written in these letters have something that we can all walk away with. Very, very important that all of us can walk away with. The other thing, and I also think something important that we should note, and actually very critical, is the whole reason why I've entitled this series the title that I've given it, and that is each and every single one of these churches represent what we call the church age. And so if you think about this, you go to the book of Revelation chapter one, everybody says, oh, Revelation is so complicated, and there's a lot of questions that people have about it, and truth be told, it's an easy book, okay? It might very well be one of the easiest books in the Bible to teach or to learn or understand, and people look at me and go, huh, no, come on, what's easy about that? Well, it's very, very easy, because if you're confused about how to interpret the book of Revelation, the key to understanding the book of Revelation is actually found all the way back in verse 19, where Jesus said, write the things which are, that are the things which were, the things which are, and the things which are to come. And so what is he talking about? What well, the things that were are the things that we read about in chapter one of the book of Revelation. The things which are, are the church age, the age in which we live today. And that is the things that we read in Revelation chapter two and chapter three. And then the things which are to come, right, is what we read about in Revelation chapter four on. And this, of course, is one of the many 
reasons why we know the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation because God is going to take us up. And I know there's been a lot of talk lately. You hear people on the radio saying, well, there's a lot of debatable positions on these things. And yes, there are a lot of people who are taking on lots of different positions about whether or not when the church gets raptured or whether or not we're going to get raptured or all that kind of other stuff. But I can tell you right now, if you have the ability to read the Bible and you've got a basic understanding of the English language, if that's the Bible translation that you're reading, and you have a little bit of common sense to be able to look at current events and understand the basic heart of God, then you can, for the most part, be extraordinarily confident in your position that we're going to be raptured before the tribulation. And if you're sitting here and you're a Christian and you don't believe me when I say you're going to get raptured before the tribulation, you'll believe me when you get raptured. I promise you that, okay? You will. You're going to agree with me when that happens. I, I make no quirks about it. I have no question in my mind about that. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt based on what the scriptures teach that the church of Jesus Christ will be taken up before God executes his judgment upon the rest of the world. Make no mistake about it. And so this church age that we're talking about is really an important concept in the book of Revelation. Now, if we were to say that each of these churches represented a particular time period, well, then let's talk about the first two churches. The book of, or the church in Ephesus represents the time period from the inception of the church, right? From the very, very beginning, all the way until about 180. AD. It covers that time. And then the church that we read about when we get to the church of Smyrna actually represents that period, that time period in the church where persecution was greater than it had been in a very, very long time, which by the way, persecution is increasing numerically and exponentially in the days in which we're living right now. As a matter of fact, it's believed uh, in just in uh, last, I think it's this year, no, sorry, within the last 12 months, we've had 200 million Christians around the world that are being brutally persecuted, whether it be imprisoned, beat, jailed. And the number I think right now, the number that we haven't been able to confirm, but it's roughly, the estimate is 300,000 that have been killed, right? Just in last year alone for their faith. So just to give you an idea of persecution and how it grows. And so the church in Smyrna was the persecuted church that went through a tremendous amount of suffering. And that would have been right around 100 to 110 AD, all the way into what we would uh, look at the time of Constantine to around 315 AD. And like I said before, a great resource that I would recommend to look at these different time periods would be a guy by the name of John Walverd. And it's the book that's written, The Seven Letters to the Seven Churches. It's a very, 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 very good book. Would highly recommend that you read it. It's, uh, it's very, very good, very insightful. Uh, I think that he does a good job in being able to explain it. Actually, anything that John Walford writes, for the most part, is really solid as it relates to Bible prophecy. He does a really, really good job um, as it relates to these subjects. And uh, very insightful, very wise brother. He's with the Lord now, but uh, the, the wisdom that he brought is, is pretty wonderful. So now the next period that gets represented when we get into the church at Pergamos is we are talking about what I would like to call the church of the state, right? The state church. And this is the church, the time period that started right around Constantine, where basically the church in essence was pretty much the state. And of course, that became a very corrupt church and it became a very dark church. And for those of you that guys, for those of you that know, this is what gives lots of people the ammo to say, yeah, bro, back in the day, the church was dirty, man. They were really corrupt. And I always surprise people when I look at them and I say, yeah, you're right. They really were corrupt back in those days, but that wasn't the heart of Christ 
right? That was mankind yielding and falling to that corruption. So that's what the time period the church at Pergamos represents. So let's get into it. Let's see what he has to say to the church at Pergamos here in the area of Turkey, Asia Minor, as we understand it. Look what he says. He says, now to the angel of the church in Pergamos, in other words, the pastor of the church in Pergamos, write these things, saith he, which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, let's stop for just a minute and talk about the city of Pergamos. I think it's appropriate to bring that up and to kind of explain how uh, the church of Pergamos was, rather the city of Pergamos, Pergamos was a city that was very, 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 very rich, okay? It was a luxurious city. It was a type of city that was not only huge, but it was a type of city where it was, it was pretty much money, if you know what I mean, okay? It was a, the type of city where lots and lots and lots of things were centered around materialism. Lots of things were just centered around everything was pretty much perfect, okay? And so when you went there, there were lots of things about that place that were also pretty wicked, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. This was a place that had hundreds, it was believed to be as many as hundreds of different places of worship of false gods within the city. The city was an ugly ugly city in that sense. There was a lot of wickedness that was going on. And so we're going to talk about Pergamos in just a second, a little bit more in the detail about some of the things that they had done. But did you notice here that Jesus addresses himself as the one which has the sharp sword with two edges? Now, I think this is indicative of two primary areas, right? The first area that this is indicative of is God's judgment, right? Because the person who walks with the sword, and when Jesus is described in, in at least one context as one holding the sword, it is the picture of judgment, right? It's the picture, and of course, later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to know that with the mouth of the Lord, he's going to make a single, he's going to say a single word, and it's going to destroy, you know, pretty much all of his enemies. And so we know that this is uh, definitely speaking of the picture of judgment. But the other thing that's very interesting with the two-edged sword that we also know about and that we read about is the two-edged sword is indicative of what in the Bible? At the count of three, ready? One, Two, three. That's right, the word of God. You guys weren't very confident in that. Like said, all of you said, all of you seem to say, the word of God. Yeah, the word of God. Yeah. <laughs> You're right, the word of God. And so the word of God is as a two-edged sword. We know that, right? Hebrews talks about that. We understand that, that, look, the picture that we get from this sword being the word of God is that the sword is capable of coming in and cutting anything both ways. That's exactly what it does. And it's a really powerful picture that Jesus brings because if you think about it here, you listen, listen to this. Listen to the power of this statement. If you are not willing to yield to the insight of the word of God, the sword that the word of God brings, then you will experience the sword of his judgment. Now that's heavy because I don't know about you, but I think judgment is an important characteristic to be considering when we think about these things. See, God is a perfect and just God. And if he was a perfect and just God, he has to judge sin. He has to judge evil. There's no way he can't judge evil. If he didn't judge evil, he'd be corrupt. So he has to do it to the point where he's willing to judge his son on behalf of you and me simply because the requirement for judgment has to exist in order for a pardoning to take place. And this is a pretty powerful concept. So he identifies himself as the one 
who has the sharp uh, sword with two edges. Look what he goes on to say. He says, I know thy works. And of course, we've talked about this concept, this phrase that Jesus brings in. This truth, not a concept. This truth that Jesus brings out, that he does know our works. He knows everything that we do, guys. And just like we talk about him holding a sword that's double-edged, this is a double-edged truth, right? He knows what you're doing, which means you can never hide from him. If you think you're doing something in the dark that nobody can see, oh, nobody saw that, I got away with that. No, you didn't. God watched you right? And so that's an important concept. The other important concept with respect to this idea that God knows thy works is how many of us, and there are probably many of us, feel discouraged, right? Oftentimes the the source of our discouragement is I work so hard and it seems as though nobody appreciates what I do, right? If I were to be truthful with you, oftentimes I go through that emotion. (laughs) Oftentimes my emotion is I can't believe how inconsiderate people are because they don't realize how hard I work. And I'd be willing to bet you that I share that emotion with many of you. I'd be willing to bet you that many of you feel that way at your jobs. I'd be willing to bet you that many of you feel that way sometimes in your marriages. I'd be willing to, I'd be willing to bet that many of you guys feel that, uh, feel that way just sometimes in your simple household, whatever might be going on. Can't you see how much work I did, right? I mean, think about it this way. It's, it, it's like the old adage of a husband coming home to his wife, right? And his wife has spent the whole day seeking to reorganize the house. And she's in the middle of the process. And so as she's pulled everything out, cleaned everything under there, and kind of everything is still in disarray. She hasn't put it back to organize. The husband walks in there and says, what have you been doing all day? Have you just been eating bonbons and watching Telemundo? You know what I mean? I mean, that's, you, you get it, right? And so the wife is frustrated. He hasn't seen how hard I've worked the whole day. I haven't had any rest and no one appreciates me. You know, that kind of a thing or, or the whole thing with mothers. This is really funny. I always laugh at this one. I laugh so hard when I hear somebody say, oh yeah, she's just a stay at home mom, Right? She's just a stay-at-home. What a foolish statement to make. Do you know how many women I have met that told me they got a job because they wanted a break from watching their children? It's true. It's not an easy job, is it, right? One is hard enough. Imagine having two or three or four or like my sister-in-law. She has six of them. I mean, seriously, John, come on, never mind. I'll leave that alone, right? And they're all wonderful. I love my my nieces and nephews, but it's so funny how we get to this point where we're frustrated that, man, we just, we get, we do so much work and it feels like we never get recognized. But you know what? Know this. Listen to me when I say this, guys. God is watching you. He knows your work and he, he, he sees every detail. He gets it, right? A lot of people spend a lot of time saying God's watching you when you're wanting to do the evil and he is. But more so, he's watching you when you're serving him. He's watching you when you're taking the time to study. He's watching you when you're putting in the effort that you need to put in to do those things. So trust in the fact that he's with you and that he's going to reward you for those things. So he says, I know thy works. He says, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, that thou holdest fast my name and hast uh, not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Now, why did he call Pergamos the place where Satan dwelleth, right? Why does he call Pergamos the seat of Satan? Well, really easy, because as I told you before, Pergamos was a place that housed lots of lots and lots of temples where people would come to do false worship. 
Pergamos, just like Smyrna had a temple to Zeus. It wasn't the largest temple to Zeus, but it had one. It had temples to all kinds of uh, false gods. And actually, what did house, uh, Pergamos did house some of the largest temples. They housed three temples that were amongst some of the largest temples, and they were the temples that were built to worship Caesar. Because if you remember, as I told you last week, Caesar demanded demanded to be worshiped as God. And every Caesar that existed in Rome demanded that. Perhaps there's some debate regarding the first Caesar of Rome specifically as we understood it back in those days, maybe did not demand it as much, but they all demanded to be worshiped as God. And matter of fact, it was law that they be worshiped as God. And so there were lots of false gods. And it is interesting how it'd be referred to as the seed of Satan. I believe it was referred to as the seed of Satan, not only because of the tremendous amount of false gods that were being worshipped, but this, this city also housed what was called the, the god of healing, okay? And let me tell you who the god of healing was. Many of you uh, have seen that symbol. You know, you go you look at the symbol of the medical uh, profession where it's got the snake wrapping around the, uh, wrapping around the rod. A lot of people will argue, and they could probably make a reasonable argument, that that symbol came from Moses, the time of Moses when the, when the uh, serpent came on the brass and so on and so forth. And that is actually very possible. I'm not going to take that away from people. I've actually described that before. But there are other people who believe that the serpent, the symbol of the serpent with respect to being on the rod in the medical profession was actually something that came from this day, the Greek mythology uh, a god of healing. And this temple is the place where this very likely would have come from. And this is what they did at this temple. By the way, for those of you that don't like snakes, uh, you can just hold your ears and go, la, la, la. well, don't go, la, la, la. you'll disrupt the church. But this is kind of crazy because the, it's, and it's interesting how they would call, how the Lord would call this the seat of Satan. And yet it would hold the largest temple to the God of healing, which was believed to be a snake. And so what would happen was that in their act of worship in this temple, if you were sick or something was going on with you physically, oftentimes you would go in and you'd kind of lay yourself on the ground and then they would release some snakes on the floor. And depending on the way the snake would sort of slither itself on you and interact with you would determine how you were going to get healed and so on. It's weird, weird stuff, weird form of worship. Um, just crazy, but this was sort of why this was uh, called this. I mean, this was a very satanic place to be living. And of course, the persecution that was going on in this city was insane, just like in many other areas. Now, we heard about this person, Antipas, who was uh, martyred here, as it says here in, in Revelation chapter two. We don't know much about Antipas, but we know it was somebody that had to have been martyred. And the whole idea behind the word martyr is an interesting thing. Um, and, and I probably would be worth it for me to just stop for a moment and describe the origin of this word martyr. For many of you, some of you know this, some of you do not know this. When Greek language, when the Greek language was predominantly formed, it was formed with a very classical kind of a, a use, okay? There was what we called classical Greek. It was the sort of the old school traditional Greek. It would sort of be the equivalent of Elizabethan English for us today right? And of course, as time went on, uh, as you know, Elizabethan English, if somebody were to walk into the room right now and use true old school Elizabethan English, you'd probably not understand most of what they said, but you'd be able to make connections based on some of the words that they share, 
right? Uh, very much like King James on steroids kind of talk. You know what I'm talking about? And so that was Elizabethan English. Now, of course, the English language has morphed so considerably over the last 400 years, actually 500 years to be specific. And now the type of English that we speak today is very street in nature, okay? When I say street, it's common, right? And, and actually, it's morphed to the point where it's so crazy street, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, like I told you before, people greet people in weird ways now when they, they, they I mean, I, I actually witnessed a conversation recently where two guys were pretty much uh, growling at each other and they were able to communicate, right? Hey, mm, oh yeah, mm, mm, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, okay, okay yeah, mm, oh, oh. What was that? right? That's what it's morphed to. But, you know, common English now is a very, very different type of English than the kind of English that you see in Elizabethan English years. And so this was the way with the Greek language. See, the classical Greek language was very complicated and there was a lot of very, very specific, you know, very uh, not understood words back then. And it morphed into a more street language, which was the kind of Greek that the Bible was written in. And that was what we call Koine Greek, right? So the word that we use for martyr in classical Greek had a very simplified meaning, uh, a very uh, strict meaning. And the meaning was you were a witness. So if you were a martyr, you said, yes, that's true. You would be called a martyr. You'd be called a witness, right? Later on with Koine Greek, because of what was going on with the church, if you were a martyr, that meant that you witnessed and you said it was true and you were willing to die for that truth. That's what that was. So one of my favorite stories of, of some of the early church martyrs, I think, uh, is probably one, the, the story of Polycarp. I don't know if any of you have heard the story of how Polycarp was, was executed, but that story is a pretty powerful story. You see, Polycarp lived a relatively long life. Polycarp, if you don't know, was an understudy of John, uh, was actually believed to be, for a little while, one of the elders at Ephesus, just like um, uh, Ignatius, who actually, Ignatius spent more of his time in Smyrna, but Polycarp was an understudy of John directly, a direct understudy of John the Apostle. And so he lived a relatively long life. And uh, somewhere in his 80s, probably mid uh, to late 80s, some people believe 86, 87 years old, um, it came the time for them to pretty much execute him. And what was going on back then was if you had proclaimed Caesar as Lord, you would be free. They'd just let you go. So they go to Polycarp and they say, hey, listen, burn a little incense for Caesar and proclaim him Lord. And Polycarp said, no, I'm not doing that. So they take Polycarp and the person that was, that was taking him over there did not want him to die. So they kept asking him, please don't just, just come on, just don't be stubborn. Proclaim Caesar as Lord and everything will be okay. So they take him into the middle of the arena. And if you didn't know what they did in the arenas, the arenas were pretty bad. The arenas, they would uh, put somebody, a Christian in the middle of the arena, and then they would release a hungry lion. And the hungry lion would go in and just tear the Christian apart. And the crowd would, wow, that was their entertainment. They just loved it. It's like football to us today. They're, wow, you know, they got so excited about it. They loved watching human death uh, taking place. And this was very, very morbid. It was very, very ugly. But these people were all ungodly people. And it was something that was a sport for them. And so they pretty much loved watching the fear in the eyes of the Christians and so on and so forth. And so um, uh, oftentimes what would happen was they, they, the Christian would be told one last time proclaim Caesar as Lord they'd say no and then of course they would let the lions go to kill them and this was a very common thing so they take Polycarp to the middle of the arena they beg 
beg him, please, please, please change your mind. Just burn a little incense. Just do that for, uh, uh, for Caesar. Everything will be okay. He says, no, I can't deny the Lord. I just can't do it. And finally, they make this last appeal to him. And they say, please, will you do this? He goes, listen, I've been serving Jesus my whole life. And there's no way at the last minute that I'm going to finish by denying him. I'm not going to do it. So go ahead and kill me. So the people that are in the arena recognize that they can't bring the lions out because the lions had already been put away and so on and so forth. So they decide, they devise another way to kill Polycarp. So what do they do? They take a bunch of wood. They put it in the middle of the arena. They take a big uh, stake. They put it in the middle of the wood. They tie him up to the stake and they light the wood on fire. They make a huge, big blazing fire. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Bible says, uh, who did not burn. If you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, well, just like them, Polycarp actually, according to uh, church tradition, church history, did not burn. He actually just, the fire was going and the fire was going and the fire was going and they waited until the fire dwindled down a little bit, noticed that he had not burned and he was talking and everything was fine. And so the guards were so upset by that that they took their spears, ready for this, and they impaled him. And in doing so, when his blood came out, when his blood gushed out, it extinguished the fire. And the whole time he was saying, I'm not going to deny the Lord. And this was the kind of persecution that the Christians were going through back then. Listen, we're not going through any of that kind of, <laughs> at least not in the Western uh, part of the, of the world, right? In the United States, we don't understand that kind of persecution. But this is what was going on. And so Jesus was saying, look, uh, the stuff that you guys are going through, you are faithful martyrs. You've been, you've been consistent. You've proclaimed the Lord. That's a good thing. But then look, notice what he says. But I have a few things against you. So he's going to name a few things that he has against them. And he he says, because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. So uh, this is a pretty heavy uh, condemnation that's given on them. He says that you have held to the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what does the doctrine of Balaam mean? Well, to talk about the doctrine of Balaam, we have to go back to the story of Balaam the prophet. You remember the story of Balaam? If you remember Balaam, Balaam runs into a guy by the name of Balaam. Balak. Balak is the king of Moab, if you guys remember this, right? And Balak says, look, all of these Israelites, I need you, Balaam, I need you to pronounce a curse against them so I can defeat them. They're my enemies. And Balaam says, Balak, sorry, there's no way I can't do that. I can't proclaim a curse. I'm, a, I, I'm not going to speak on behalf of the Lord and say something that isn't true. God just won't curse them. And Balak says, that's too bad because I had a whole bunch of money that I wanted to give you. I had a whole bunch of riches that I wanted to give you. I have a whole lot of everything that I wanted to reward you with, but I can't because you can't curse these people. And so Balaam said, hmm, I told your servants, I can't do this, I can't. And Balaam goes back and he says, okay, well, let me think about this. And then he goes back to Balak and he says, you know, Balak, I can't pronounce a curse against the children of Israel, but you know what I can do? I can teach you a way to get them to be cursed by God. And so Balak says, okay, I'm listening. And Balaam says, look, you need to get them to worship your false gods. And the only way I think you can get them to worship your false gods is get all the pretty girls, get them to get real near the, the guys, have them go into the tents, have them lure them in sexually, let them have their sexual experiences, you know, let, get them really all, you know, knotted up in these, uh, you know, these mixed relationships, and then have the girls pull out their false gods, and you can, you know, uh, worship these false gods in the promiscuity, in the midst of the promiscuity and everything, and then God will curse them because of what they've done. And so that's exactly what Balak did. Balaam gave that advice. Balak did that. And by the way, it's interesting because there, this, there is a funny story tied to this in case you guys don't remember. But you remember the talking donkey, right? 
not to be confused with Mr. Ed, who was a talking horse. We're talking about the talking donkey, right? This is an interesting story, but if you remember, uh, Balaam, after he gives all this advice and does what he does, and gets the children of Israel cursed or whatever, he's coming around the mountain, if you remember this, right? And he says, he's turning around the corner, the donkey stops all of a sudden, his donkey doesn't want to move. And so he's, now he's upset with the donkey, come on, you know? And in his frustration, the Bible says he smites the donkey. It's King James language, right? He hits a donkey and the donkey turns around him and says, hey, dummy (laughs) a little bit of creativity here hollywood creativity you know can't you see the angel of the lord around the corner he's waiting with the sword to smite you and it's kind of funny god uses donkey to warn to warn balaam but the story is a very uh powerful story and so when you know the story then you go back and you say well what's the what's the doctrine of balaam well i believe that the doctrine of balaam that's being discussed here is the church that refuses to give the message of the truth at the expense, at the expense of souls simply for the sake of gain, right? And don't get me wrong, we see it everywhere now. We see it everywhere. Listen, you go through the streets of Long Beach, every other church that you pass by, unfortunately, what are they going to have? They're going to have a gay pride flag in front of it, right? And they say, all is welcome. We love you all here. Well, I'll make this statement. I'll make it very, very clear. Every gay person that can hear me, lesbian, queer, whatever you want to call it, anybody from the LGBTQ community that can hear my voice, Calvary Chapel, Signal Hill, welcomes you here with open arms. You will always be welcomed here with open arms. But we're going to tell you the truth about what the Bible says concerning your lifestyle. We love you, and because we love you, we're going to tell you the truth because we don't want you to go to hell. And we want you to live a life that's better. We want you to have the best of everything. So because of that, we're going to tell you the truth. And instead of just simply making this whole doctrine of inclusion that everybody kind of allows and they don't really speak the truth, I mean, think about it. All of those people that are going to those churches right now, guys, think about this. It's so sad. All of those people that are going to those churches and are being accepted and not being told that the lifestyle they're living is wrong. As a matter of fact, they're being told that everything is okay and their lifestyles are being affirmed. Think about this. What's going to happen when they're in hell? The the, the thought that they're going to think is, why didn't anybody tell me? I mean, I don't want that on my hands. And don't get me wrong. Listen, there are many, many times where as a pastor, I'm very tempted to withhold information from somebody. I'm very tempted to not breach a subject. I'm very tempted to not confront people. I'm very tempted to not tell the truth because in my eyes, if I say these things, I confront people, they're going to be mad at me. They're not going to like me. But here's the thing. I would much rather you hate me right now and be mad at me, right? And then, and then me take a few hits and you actually do the best that you can do, and later on, know that what I gave you was right, and you do well with the Lord, then you absolutely love me now, and go to hell. I don't want that. So the doctrine of Balaam are the churches that seek to be appealing to the itching ears of the people that come to it. And guys, we see churches like this everywhere. Church growth is a big deal. There are lots of pastors who are more worried about their makeup, their clothing, their appearance. They're more worried about the music that gets played than they are the message of the gospel. They're more worried about taking a stand on issues than they are about speaking the truth. I hear this all the time. That's why I love people like Pastor Jack Hibbs. I am so thankful for people like him in the body of Christ. They're inspirations to me. Dave Roth's another guy. Some of these guys, that just they speak out and they don't give a rip what anybody thinks because it's better to speak the truth, isn't it? 
He was the other day, uh, he was talking about the, the new apostolic reformation movement. It's a dangerous movement. The Bethel Church is associated with it, right? Uh, even Hillsong is in that direction. There's a lot of really bad, wicked, satanic doctrine that's being taught in some of these churches. And there is a movement right now, even in some Calvary chapels, that are saying, oh, it's not as bad as you think. You don't know what you're really talking about. You don't know the issues. You're not really considering it. These really aren't as bad as they say they are. And you know what's really sad about that? The people that are making those statements are people that are more concerned about bringing people in and having unity than they are about telling people the truth and keeping them out of the flames of hell. It's the truth. And if you don't believe me, listen, guys, this is sad, but this, this, this whole doctrine of Balaam really does work, unfortunately. This doctrine of Balaam has allowed so many churches to materialistically and physically prosper when spiritually you're dying. And if you don't believe me, go visit. Seriously, and I'm not encouraging you to go visit him because I don't want you to visit, you know, uh, heresy. I don't want you to go and visit and listen to something that isn't right. But, but just go look at some of these churches that are, that are preaching health and wealth and literally nothing else. They deny the deity of Christ. They walk away from the message of the gospel. They literally will sugarcoat it at the expense of people and their lives and their walks. They spend more time about material gain and God giving you what you want and ask God for this and he'll bless you then is then saying repent of the lifestyle you're living because God wants to give you better he wants to give you better on this earth and he wants to give you better in heaven nobody is will, uh, lots of people are not willing to do that anymore ask guys like Joel Osteen forgive me for naming him but it's true right we have churches that are like this. They continue to do it, and they do it at the expense of the body of Christ. And listen, I, look, guys, I love you, and I have absolutely no desire to upset you. Listen, one of the greatest temptations that I have oftentimes is to want to be the type of person that, uh, that would seek to please you, right? Even to the point where I'm tempted to not say the truth. God forbid that I would ever get to that point. God forbid that you would ever get to that point. God forbid that we'd ever get to the point where we are shy about telling you the truth for the sake of your healing. Listen, so many of you guys, I love so many of you so much, and there have been many times where you've come into my office and you've asked me for counsel, and the last thing I want to do is tell you what's true. Because I know that if I tell you what's true, it's going to hurt you, and it might create some conflict, and it might be difficult, but you know what I love about telling people the truth? Once they get past that part of not liking me, and once they get past the part of not wanting to hear what I say, and they're godly enough and wise enough to listen to the counsel, it's wonderful to see their lives transform. It is. It is. It's wonderful to see God changing them, Right? It'll make you laugh how many times I've had husbands or even wives come my way and complain about their spouses. It's their fault. It's their fault. You know what they want out of their pastor? They want their pastor. If it is, whether or not it's their, they want me to say, oh, you're right. I'm with you. And they, that's what they want. They want somebody to sympathize with them. The last thing they want is to say, actually, things are a mess because you made it that way. Change. Repent. Everything will be better. They don't want to hear that. But when they hear it and they listen, they grow. I'd rather be the guy that's disliked and watches lots of people walk in victory and walk in the glory of God than be the person that's loved by everybody and leading everybody into the, the floor of hell. Right? And then look what he goes on to say. He says, so hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, 
the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which uh, thing I hate. Now, you can go back to the letter of the church in Ephesus where I talk about the Nicolaitans. Uh, this is actually, I, I had you go do some homework about uh, where the word Nicolaitan came from and a little bit of a hint. This uh, has the word Nike tied to it. If you ever heard of the Nike shoe company, right? Uh, their phrase is just do it. And it kind of follows along the theme of the definition of this Greek word. This Greek word is, is all about conquering. It's indicative of the word to conquer. Right, And so when we talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, I talk about this more in detail in my study in the church of Ephesus, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans were the pastors who conquered over the laity, the lay folks, right? Conquered over the people in the church. They ruled over the people in the church. And, and so the whole idea was you come to me for permission to get married. You come to me to tell me how to spend, I'll tell you how to spend your money. You come, you know, that kind of a thing. God, he hates that. He says he hates it. And you guys, he says, you guys, here in Pergamos, you've tolerated these types of things, which by the way, would make perfect sense. If you're the state church, you're going to bring all this stuff in. Materialism is the big deal. Money's the big deal. All of those things is the big deal. When in reality, what God says is God says, no, go back to the basics, right? He says, go back to the basics. Look what he says. Here's his exhortation in knowing this. He says, repent or else I will come to thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. First of all, none of us want the or else, okay? Can I just tell you that right now? You, if, you, if somebody's going to come against you, you don't want it to be Jesus, okay? And if he says he's coming with the sword, you don't want to fight against him, okay? Because I can promise you this, you go lose, all right? I'm going to say that again. You go lose. You're done. There's no hope for you. You're finished, okay? So we don't want that. Here's the better exhortation. The better exhortation is repent, Repent means completely change. Turn around from your way of thinking. Don't think that way anymore. Don't do those things anymore. And by the way, can I just tell you this right now? I oftentimes have to tell myself repent in this particular area. In the area of the doctrine of Balaam, I'm constantly being tempted. Listen, I believe me when I say this. I'm constantly being tempted to say the thing that will make you like me more than I am to say the thing that's true regardless of the consequence, Right? Because it's hard to take a stand for the things that are right. It is. Somebody came up to me and they said, well, Pastor James, you seem to like the president. You seem to like President Trump a lot. Well, let me make this statement without me saying I like or dislike anybody. Because I loved President Obama and I've loved every president prior to him because I'm commanded to love them. But let me just make this statement. We have never had a president in U.S. history ever, not a single sitting president, that spoke at the March of Life, the March for Life. We've never had anybody who's championed anti-abortion more than this president. He may very well be the guy that God uses to eliminate most abortions that take place in this country. You want me to vote for another person? He's the friendliest president ever to Christians, to Israel, to pastors. Now, is that a scary thing to tell a group of people? Yes, because they hate him. They absolutely hate him. That's a scary thing for a man like me to be able to say. Why? Because now you become the target of everybody. Hey, no one likes you. I don't care. I want to tell you what's good for you. <laughs> I want to tell you the truth. I want to tell you what's going to bless you, 
right? People come into my office all the time. This happens a lot. They come into my office all the time and they're wanting counsel about an issue. I am so tempted on a regular basis to say something that's sugar-coated and say something that's kind of nice and mellow and calm and nothing that really deals with the issue and God has to tell me on a regular basis, repent, repent, stop it. Turn around and speak the truth. Yeah, look, they're not going to like me for a little while, right? But eventually, you're going to learn to do what? You're going to learn to benefit from the wisdom and the counsel that's being given. And even if you never like me another day in your life, but you become successful in the Lord, then praise God, my job is done, right? I used to tell my dad all the time, my dad would punish us, and we'd say crazy words to our dad. And in the Middle East, you don't talk like this way to your parents. We'd say, I hate you! How many kids have done that in their anger, right? My dad would say, this was, this was his response in Arabic. says, I don't care if you hate me. You could hate me till you die. But I'm never going to let you get away with anything. Thank God I had a dad like that, right? Thank God I had a dad that would do that to me. Instead of a dad that left me because he was frustrated or left my mom or wasn't involved in our lives. Thank God. Yeah, at the time where we mad at him, at the time where we so mad that we'd say, I hate you, yes. But we... He's hero status to us now, right? That's my point. I don't want to be the man as your pastor to tell you the things that you want to hear and then let you walk out and suffer. No, I want to tell you the things that even sometimes you don't want to hear, that you would walk back and have great victory and have great glory. And that's the idea. Now look what he goes on to say, and this is so cool. Uh, This is my literal favorite part of this whole passage. He says in verse 17, He says, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcome, I will give to eat of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth. Okay, this speaks about two things, okay? Two very powerful things. And this is really, really powerful. The first thing that he speaks about is what's going to happen to you on earth if you listen to what he has to say. The second thing that he speaks about is what he has waiting for you in heaven. Okay, what's he talking about on earth? Okay, let's talk about manna. Manna is an interesting word. If you don't know the definition of the Hebrew word manna, the Hebrew word manna is what is it, right? So like, you know, and so you'll even see this in modern day Hebrew. Oftentimes you walk across something, you see something, you don't recognize what it is manna like what is this thing right that's what you'd say and so god when he was walking the children through, was walking the children of israel through the wilderness the children of israel didn't have any food so every morning god provided them with this food and the, you know they look at it and they go, what is this stuff that's what manna means that's the name of the food it was called manna meaning what is it i don't know what it is looks like just chicken eat it no i'm just kidding no but it was that kind of a thing right it was like i don't know what it is but uh, i'm gonna eat it because god gave it to me now here was the interesting thing about manna. Here's a few things that people didn't always completely realize or make the connection. There were two rules that were very, very important about manna that you had to, that you had to understand. The first thing is you had to be willing to ignore what it was, what you didn't know, what, it, what, what you didn't know about it, and know in faith that whatever was on the ground was what something God gave you, and then you had to eat it. It was there for you, and it was there for you to eat every single day. The second rule was this. You could never gather more than what was necessary for the day. As a matter of fact, if you gathered more for what was necessary for the day. Oh, I want to have a midnight snack or I want to have something for tomorrow so I'm going to take a little extra. That stuff would go rotten. Always did. And this was the rule that God gave the children of Israel. Now here was what was really special about this rule. I want you to understand why it was so important. When you see the word manna today, 
The word manna today is indicative of God's glory. And I'll tell you why it's indicative of God's glory. Because think about what manna did to you. It did two things. The first thing it did is it nourished you, right? You woke up every morning, you had the food you needed to eat, it lasted you throughout the day, and it nourished you, provided for you, right? You know what the second thing manna did? Manna forced you to rely upon God new and afresh every single day. See, you had to wake up in the morning. You had to go to bed at night knowing you had no food and wake up in the morning knowing that God would provide it for you. And so you'd look up to the sky. You would trust that when you walked outside of your tent, God would have that food waiting for you. And it forced you to rely upon God's provision. So when God says, I'm going to give to you that hidden manna, you know what he's talking about? He says, I'm going to restore to you the ability to experience my glory afresh and anew every single day. In other words, I'm going to teach you not only to rely upon me, but I'm going to come through for you as you rely upon me. Every single day, you're going to experience the newness of my glory. Every day, you, you repent. You repent of this desire for materialism. You repent of this desire to compromise, to throw away all of your morals for the sake of money like Balaam did. If you, were, if you choose to deny all of these things and simply trust me to walk with me, you repent. Every single day, you're going to experience the newness of my glory. And let me tell you something. There is nothing like that feeling. There is nothing like the feeling of waking up every single morning knowing you need to depend upon the Lord and relying upon the newness of his glory. Listen, if you don't know what that's like, <laughs> let me tell you, it's pretty wonderful, okay? It's pretty wonderful. I'm not gonna lose it like I did first service, right? It's pretty wonderful to be in the worst pain of your life or to have a tremendous amount of physical challenges that prohibit you from doing the everyday things that people do and wake up in the morning and going, Lord, I'm going to depend on you to get me through the day today. There's nothing like waking up in the morning and recognizing your body won't cooperate with you and say, God, I'm going to depend on you to help me. That's one aspect of the many aspects that the glory of God will show up in your life, right? There's nothing like waking up in the morning and saying, I have a child and I don't know how to feed that child, but God, I'm asking for you to provide the provision that I need to feed that child and experiencing the glory of God as he answers your prayers. There's nothing like learning to lean and depend truly upon the Lord and watching God bless you. There's nothing like ignoring the many of the, of the, of the materialistic and mental and emotional laws that we hold fast to on this earth, literally walking away from those things only to watch God completely bless you. Only to watch God just completely taking care of you in the areas of tithing, in the area of whatever you can think of, right? Whatever. It's great to experience that. So when he says you're going to have that hidden manna, that's exactly what he's talking about. It's the kind of glory, the kind of provision, the kind of care, the kind of uh, strength that nobody can know except you in your walk with God. That's why it's referred to the hidden manna. It's, it's funny. The picture is, is almost like the hidden glory of God, and it's the kind of glory that all of us know about, but no one knows about it from one another's experience. We only know about it from the experience that we have from day to day because we can hear stories all day about God providing for somebody or healing somebody or whatever, but when you're in the midst of experiencing it, it takes on a completely different meaning. And if you don't believe me, talk to a cancer survivor. If you don't believe me, talk to somebody whose life was almost lost and God saved them. If you don't believe me, talk to somebody who was dead poor and God provided for them and helped them through. There's so many stories that I could tell you about the glory of God, but none of those stories are going to help you to experience it until you experience it yourself.
That's why it's called that hidden manna. And then he talks about this white stone and a new name that's on the white stone. By the way, it's really interesting. A white stone oftentimes in a court setting back in these days would be given as a symbol of pardoning, right? So for example, you may have been found guilty about something and then they would give this to you and it would almost be like, not almost, it would be. It'd be like you were never guilty, like you were never charged in the first place. And so Jesus says, I'm gonna give you this pardon, this salvation, right? And on there, I'm gonna write your new name. And I can't wait to know what my new name is going to be. I don't know what my new name, I don't know what it is. I don't know what your name, new name is going to be, but it's really beautiful. And God has always had a habit of renaming people, hasn't he? Right? You remember the stories, Abram to Ibrahim. I mean, you know all the stories. My favorite one is Ya'ub. Remember Jacob? That's my name. That's my name in, in Hebrew. Ya'ub, the hill catcher, the city slicker, the conniver. You know, and it makes sense. It makes sense that my name is James, Ya'ub, uh, because I have a, a respectable hustle. You know, there's a bit of that in me, right? It's, it's, it's the truth. I, I can understand that. I get it. But I love the idea of that name being changed from, you know, hustler, basically, city slicker, to now Yisrael, meaning governed by God. What a beautiful name change. And who knows what your name is going to be in heaven? Who knows what your name change is going to be? But the fact that you've been given that white stone is a picture that you have been pardoned. It's a picture that you are not going to experience the suffering and the condemnation of eternal hell, but you're going to experience the eternity in the glory of God in heaven because of what he's done for you. Guys, that is a huge reason to say praise God. Amen? Father in heaven, we just thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for the message that comes from the power of these letters that you wrote to these churches, Lord. May we take them in close to our hearts. May we just be really, really, really enthralled by what you have for us, Lord, and may we be people whose minds and hearts are stayed on you. We love you, God. We thank you. Go before us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.